0: I've been noticing in the news lately that Mount Everest has been getting a fair bit of traffic. It must be peak period for mountain climbing in that part of the world. And that's exactly what lots of people have been doing. And I mean lots of people. In the space of two days, over 300 people have reached the summit of Mount Everest. There's actually been traffic jams on the mountain as people have had to wait for other climbers to get off the summit so they could get on the summit. One particular serper, nicknamed Super Surper, has gotten to the summit for his record 19th time and there's another bloke who actually reached the summit twice in two days. There's so many people climbing the mountain that every now and then they've actually got to have special teams go up and remove all the trash that people have been leaving behind. Uh, stuff like ropes and tents and ladders and food cans, even the occasional dead body that people have been climbing by on the way up. So because it's peak season in the mountain climbing business, it's appropriate that this morning uh, we have reached one of the highest peaks in the Old Testament. And by that, I mean that today we have reached some of the most profound, some of the most important statements in the entire Old Testament. And look, I don't want you to misunderstand me at this point. Everything in the Old Testament is terrific. It's all God's word. Each and every passage has something to say to us. And yet every now and then you do hit a part of the Old Testament that sort of towers above all the other surrounding sections of the Old Testament. So imagine with me that the Old Testament is a mountain range and the whole thing is spectacular. Everything is awesome. Everywhere you look, it is stunning in its own right. And yet every now and then, you do get one particular mountain peak that stands out above the rest. Uh, That's the Old Testament. Everywhere you look, it's great stuff. And yet every now and then, there's a particular passage which really does dominate the landscape. Genesis chapter 12 is a chapter like that. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham that he will form a people and that people will be his own people that he will bless and put in their own special land. Now, those promises change everything in the Old Testament. Just about everything that happens in the Old Testament after Genesis 12, it's driven by that chapter. It is a very high peak in the Old Testament. God's promises to King David In 1 Samuel chapter 7, that's another high peak along the way. Uh, That's the chapter where God promises that one of David's descendants will be the ruler of God's people forever. And again, that's a chapter that changes everything. Again, it's a promise that tends to shape everything that then follows in the Old Testament. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Jeremiah 31 is right up there with those other men. We have reached a passage that again changes everything for the rest of the Bible. We've reached a passage where God again promises something so phenomenal that nothing is ever the same again. Heck, we're not the same because of this chapter. Let me show you what I mean. By this morning thinking about Jeremiah 31 in the context of the entire Bible. Uh, Next week, we're actually going to come back and look at exactly this passage again, but we're going to look at it up close and personal and take in some of the nice details about it. This morning, I actually do want to sort of step back and take in the panorama of the entire Old Testament so as to better see why this passage is such a high peak. So in order to do that, I want you to put your finger, keep your finger or a piece of paper or the bulletin or something, keep something in Jeremiah 31. We're going to get back to it pretty soon. But firstly, skip back with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, where a very serious heart problem is described. Genesis chapter 6. It's not hard to find because the first thing you, want to, you notice about a verse like this is that it's only a few pages in from the start of the Bible. Genesis chapter 6. I'm sure, as many of you know, the very start of the Bible, it's all about God making a good and perfect world. It's a world where humanity is at the very pinnacle of creation, humanity made in God's image, humanity made to rule the world under God's leadership. Sadly, what happens very quickly in Genesis is that living under God's leadership is not something that humanity really wants to do. So when it comes to the ultimate test in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve say they'd rather decide good and evil for themselves. God, could you please butt out? Uh, We'll take it on our own. And from that point on, mankind chooses to go their own way without God. And Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, sums it up as a heart problem. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had man, made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Now that is a damning verse. It's hard to fit any more negatives into that verse than are already there. Every inclination of his heart, every inclination, only evil, all the time. And so it's not that that humanity is incapable of doing good. It's just that from the heart, humanity doesn't want to. It's not that humanity is incapable of doing good. We're just not inclined to. We're not prepared to. And so notice the tragic twist in the verse, that humanity's heart is so filled with evil that God's heart is in turn filled with pain. Well, the next big development in the Old Testament is, as we noticed, Genesis 12 at Mountain Peak, where God decides to start again by making some promises to Abraham. And we're meant to see it as starting again because instead of Adam and Eve living under God's leadership in the Garden of Eden, God now starts again with Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, living under his leadership in the Promised Land. It's a restarting of stuff. Hey, who knows, maybe, maybe things will be better this time round. In fact, so as to try and ensure that things are better this time round, God, in fact, gives Israel, Abraham's descendants, a very strong warning about their heart. So let's jump forward now and pick the story up in Deuteronomy 29. Skip a few chapters. Cross to the right, Deuteronomy chapter 29. This is where the descendants of Abraham are about to cross the the River Jordan and get into the promised land, the land that God had promised they could have. But before they go, their leader, Moses, has a bit of a word of advice for them. Uh, It's actually a bit like uh, the family. You know when a family goes somewhere special, like you might be going out to a nice restaurant, and so the parents give this big lecture to the children about how they need to have their best uh, banners on show and how they better behave themselves? That is Moses in Deuteronomy 29. He is giving the big dad lecture to Israel. They're about to enter the Promised Land, and Moses wants them to be on their best behavior. Let's pick it up in Jeremiah 29, verse 18. You'll never guess what he wants to talk about. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no bitter root among you that produces such bitter poison. Now, I want you to understand that what Moses is effectively saying there is don't make the same mistake as Adam and Eve. Because remember, when God put Adam and Eve in their special place, the hearts of their descendants, remember from Genesis, the hearts of, the inclination of their hearts was only evil all the time. And Moses is now saying to Israel, look, when you get into your special place, don't you turn your heart away. And it's a serious warning because in the verses that surround this one, Moses actually says that if your hearts do turn away, then you'll suffer the same fate as Adam and Eve did. You'll be out on your ear. God will kick you out of the promised land. It'll just be like Adam and Eve. They will be thrown out of their special place as well if their hearts turn away from God the way the descendants of Adam and Eve did. Now, I hope I'm not spoiling the story too much for you when I tell you that uh, everything Moses warned about sadly comes true. And, and in many ways, it's not a perfect fit, but in many ways that... That picture isn't a bad depiction of what happens in the Old Testament. That after 2 Samuel chapter 7, the horizon just sort of goes downward all the time. As Israel do continually turn away from God. And they are eventually thrown out of the promised land. And it is all about a heart problem. The book of Jeremiah makes that very clear. Remember Jeremiah? This is a book written at the time of the exile. This is a time when Babylonian has come through. They've conquered Israel. They've ripped hundreds of people out of the promised land. And all the way through the book, God has repeatedly said that it's because of Israel, the state of their heart, that's gotten them into this mess in the first place. God describes Israel as having evil hearts in Jeremiah chapter 4, 7, 11, 16, 18. He describes them as having stubborn hearts, chapters 5, 9, 11, 13, 23. He tells them they've got rebellious hearts, chapters 5 and 13, uncircumcised hearts, chapters 9, hearts that are far from God, chapter 12, cursed hearts, chapter 17. What is repeatedly said in the book of Jeremiah is that Israel have been plagued by exactly the same problem that has plagued humanity ever since Genesis. It's been the state of their heart. They have not been inclined to, to ever do what God wants them to do. And then you hit Jeremiah 31. And suddenly there is a massive mountain peak. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 32. It will not be like the covenant I made with your forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they break my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Friends, this is a massive mountain peak and it's all got to do with that little phrase in verse 33, I will write it on their hearts. In other words, God is going to do something new. The days are coming when a whole new arrangement is going to exist between God and his people. A whole new set of terms is going to be ushered in. A whole new arrangement when God is actually going to give his people a heart that wants to obey him. And at this point, I stumble for words because almost everything I say at this point cannot capture the enormity of a promise like that. This is a pretty remarkable promise. It's actually the sort of promise we all need to have. Because we've been we have seen that in the Old Testament we have the problem of an evil stubborn heart and it's not just Israel. It's all of us. It's what's been holding back humanity ever since the book of Genesis. And I know in one sense it's not politically correct to sort of say this sort of thing because the spirit of our age is that you and I are basically pretty good. And it's the system that's the problem. You know, we've just got to get the political system right, get the education system right. History proves that that's not right. No matter what happens in history, no matter what system you're in, there is always trouble. There is always evil. And all the way, right from the very start, God has been saying that it's because of us. We stuff things up, and it's because of, the, because of our heart. We are not inclined to do what God wants us to do, and we are not inclined to obey the things that God says we should do. <coughs> Which is very frustrating. You think this cough is frustrating? Sin is worse. All God ever wants to do is gather a people, put them in a special place and bless them. And all that ever happens is that people just push him away. And here in, Genesis, in Jeremiah 31, God says, I'm going to change that. I'm going to bring in a new covenant where I write my law on my people's hearts. I will gather a people who actually want to do the right thing. I will gather a people who obey me, not because they have to, but because they want to. It's an extraordinary promise. And actually sets up a whole sense of anticipation within the Old Testament of, gee, I wonder when the heck this new arrangement's going to come in. I wonder when this new covenant will occur. At first, when Israel come back from the exile in history, they actually do re-enter the promised land. People are pretty excited about that because they think, hey, maybe this is the start of the new covenant. It's not. Israel stuffed things up again. you just got to keep reading through the, to the end of the Old Testament to see that. Jesus makes that very clear in the Gospels. He is continually telling Israel that their hearts are wrong. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? Out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. That's Jesus' words, not mine. This people's hearts have become calloused, they hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes, that's Jesus' words. These people honour me with their lips but their hearts are far from me, that's Jesus speaking. Things that come out of the mouth come from the heart and these make a man unclean, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, that's Jesus speaking. And time and time and time again throughout the Gospels, Jesus reaffirms that the problem with Israel, the problem with you, the problem with me, the problem with us all, it's our heart. We just don't want to do what God wants us to do. And it just feeds the anticipation. Boy, when's this new covenant going to come in? And then the night before he's crucified... Jesus in his final meal with his disciples, he picks up a cup of wine, holds it in front of his disciples and says, in Luke 22, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I reckon you could have heard a pin drop. For Jesus is astonishingly saying that his blood, his death, is the way that God intends to bring Jeremiah 31 in. And with those words ringing in his disciples' ears, the next day he goes out to the cross, is nailed to the wood in the place of sinners. He lays down his life so that that barrier of sin that's always been the veil between God and the heart of his people, he lays down his life so that that sin can be erased. He's nailed to the wood so as to unleash a kingdom of people, each of whom is given a new heart so as to know God and so as to desire the things of God. He is nailed to the wood so as to unleash a kingdom of people, each of whom are reborn by God's own spirit, a worldwide universal kingdom of people, part of whom is in this very room this morning. The effects of this verse, Jeremiah 31, reaches down through history into this very auditorium today through the work of Jesus. And look, I'd love you to see how Jeremiah fits into the ebb and flow of the Old Testament, but I don't want you to just go away this morning with images of mountains in your head. What I'd love you to do is get a a fresh glimpse of just the sheer magnitude of what is going on in your life when you are a follower of Jesus. This is a passage that's pointing us to the amazing fact that when you are in Christ, look, you have a new heart. When you follow Jesus, your desires are being transformed by no less than God himself. The Apostle Paul describes it in Romans 6 as this. You used to be slaves to sin, but now you've been set free from sin. You've become slaves to righteousness. Can you get your head around that? God has written his desires on your heart. You've been born in you by his spirit. There is no temptation in your life that you cannot resist. There is no situation you cannot get through without your faith staying intact. There is no trial or difficulty that you cannot learn from. There is no sin. Do not give in. There is no sin you cannot get rid of. And look, I'm not saying that we'll be perfect this side of heaven. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that life it won't be tough and that all, that, that following Jesus won't require a lot of blood, sweat and tears and real life. I'm not even saying that you won't, that we don't mess up at times. But what I am saying is that sin has been dethroned from the centre of your life. And I want you to be hopeful of the fact that change is possible. I want you to know that sin can be defeated. That deep down at your most fundamental level, is it not right that when you follow Jesus, at your heart of hearts, you actually want to do the right thing? That's God at work in you. And sure, you mightn't do the right, but at the very heart, you want to do the right thing. It's because of Jeremiah 31 because he promised it and Jesus delivered it. You are being changed from the inside out. He's writing his law on your heart. He's giving you his spirit so that you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul. You are being changed into the person you are always meant to be. It's sort of weird, you know, scientists in America, they're using MRI machines to study people's brains. So I was to figure out what happens when we lie to each other, sort of like a giant-sized lie detector, uh, and they're sort of figuring out which parts of the brain light up when you either tell the truth or tell a lie. The funny thing is it shows that lying is much harder work than honesty. You need seven brain areas working at once to tell a lie. You only need four to tell the truth, which in a fundamental sort of way, I'm thinking actually points out the obvious, that we were originally designed, just to be honest, we were originally designed for integrity. And yet how easy is it to not tell the truth? And ever since Genesis, God has been saying, it's because you've got a heart problem. And Jeremiah says, I'm gonna fix that. And with Jesus, God does. And when you are in Christ, you are not broken anymore. Because of the new covenant in Jesus' blood, God has put in your, put His law in your mind and written it in your heart. He is your God. You are His people. He is changing you. So expect more of yourself. I'll pray. Father, thank you for this extraordinary promise in Jeremiah and for its amazing fulfillment in Jesus' death on our behalf. Thank you that because of Jesus' death on the cross, you you, you not only give us a fresh start by forgiving us, You actually give us a fresh heart by giving us your Holy Spirit. Father, thank you. And help us to be filled with the excitement and the resolve that comes from knowing that you, the God of all the universe, is at work in us, writing your desires into our very hearts. Father, we're sorry that we don't resist sin more than we do at times. Father, we're sorry that we give into temptation far more quickly than we should. Thank you that you are at work in us. Help us to press on and be the people that you have called us and empowered us to be. Amen.